0: Well, Pastor Jim is our lead pastor, if you don't know that, and he is not here today. He's on a much-deserved vacation with his family, and so we get the privilege this morning of hearing from Ian Smith. Ian is a missionary to Japan, and uh, we are one of many churches that support him, and so he is home for a year, for a year, and so we get the privilege of uh, hearing him speak this morning. Would you welcome Ian with me? Did you eat a lot of turkey this last couple days? I'm sure it's probably worked better if I spoke in English rather than Japanese. Uh, (laughs) That was not very good Japanese either. I'm going to have to go back and repent. Uh, If anybody does speak Japanese here, I'm sorry. Uh, I have the privilege of bringing uh, God's word to you this morning, uh, when Jim asked me, when I talked with Jim about sharing, normally I, I preach on missions or preach. You know, I'm a missionary, so I, I'm really like, my wheelhouse is like simple gospel proclamation, like just sharing the gospel of people who never heard it before. Like, that's where, that's the sweet spot. And, and he's like, Well, actually, uh, why don't you preach on this passage from Romans? I'm like, Oh gosh, no. <laughs> I knew exactly what it was going to be. Because normally, like, oh, I'll let you in on a secret. Uh, there are some pastors who want to take like an entire chapter of scripture and preach on that because then there's lots of places like jump off, you know, like talk about different verses and you can get into Greek and the Hebrew and, you know, like you can spend an hour just talking about like the nuances of stuff. You don't actually have to like preach anything substantive. You just say what's in the text. And then there's other pastors who like to take one verse uh, and Completely out of context, just use it as a jump off point into like what they were thinking about this week, like you know like was it a little little game, and you know like. Ah this is the word I received from the Lord. It's all about politics, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, like, I mean, that's, honestly, that's kind of that's like, and there's this joke that all pastors really only have, like, one sermon. They just preach it a, a lot of different times in a lot of different ways. And so this is outside of my wheelhouse. This is outside of where I'm normally comfortable, so I hope you'll be going with me, and, <laughs> and you'll stick with me, because I think it'll be worth it. Uh, so just to, just to remind everybody, we're in Romans right now, uh, and we're uh, in this series, and I have this incredibly important passage, uh, Apostle Paul, you know, setting, setting the stage, Let's, why, why don't we all rise together for the reading of God's word? You know, I think that's important. Romans chapter 1, 22 to 23, if you don't have it in front of you in the Bible, we can read it from up there. So one, two, three, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creep... Yes, creeping things. Uh, (laughs) Whatever, I have two translations in front of me. This is not helping. Uh, Creeping things, creeping things. You may be seated. That was God's word. Creeping things. Okay, okay. I'm already I've already fallen down. Gotta get up, pull myself back up. So as you may imagine, these are two verses, it's one sentence And I don't want to just jump off into a conversation about, like, the Apple Cup game. Go Huskies. Sorry. (laughs) But uh, because we're talking about idolatry today and talking about worshiping animals, I mean, that's not relevant at all to our current society or anything like that. It's not like in the middle of the holiday season when, you know, consumerism and... No, no, there's... I mean, how many here think that idolatry is still a big problem in, in America and in the church? Okay, you all agree. I don't have to preach this sermon. Goodbye. (laughs) Uh, That's easy. You just made my job a lot easier. Actually, no. This is one of those passages. Like, Jesus on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they're like, he's calling Isaiah. He's, what is he doing? And actually, if you were like a a Pharisee, you would have known like the way they reference Psalms is they'd say the first words of the Psalm. And you could, like he was basically saying the entire Psalm. Like, and the psalm is actually, you know, a messianic psalm. So he's actually declaring that this is what God has to do on the cross to accomplish his mission. And so Jesus isn't saying, God is, you know, like God has turned my, his back on me and I've forsaken. He's actually saying, God is doing exactly what he's planning to do. Now, that's to say that this is one of those verses. It's like claiming to be wise that became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And you're thinking, what is this supposed to do for me? Like, you know, I've... I, I read the Bible, but like this, this doesn't sound like anything important. But for a person that Paul is preaching to or teaching to, this, for somebody who's been reading the Old Testament, has been in the Old Testament, has been maybe trained as a Pharisee or a Sadducee, this is going to turn on a whole bunch of lights. Because this points back at several significant themes in the Old Testament. So let's go ahead, and I'm going to actually start with a quote because I know this is Life Point Church, and if I don't quote some theologians, Jim's going to hear about it. <laughs> so let's go to the next slide. So setting up the, the sermon, uh, the title of this sermon is "Made to Worship." And this is a quote from uh, a gentleman named Sadhu Sundar Singh, who was a Christian theologian and missionary preacher. in the early uh, late 8th, 19th century, early 20th century, he died uh, on the road to Tibet in an avalanche in 1929. You will hardly find men who do not worship God or some power. If atheistic thinkers or scientists filled with materialistic outlook do not worship God, they often tend to worship great men and heroes of some idea which they exalt into a power. Buddha did not teach anything about God. The result was his followers began to worship him. In China, the people began to worship ancestors, and they were not taught to worship God. Even illiterate people are found worshiping some power or spirit. In short, men cannot but worship. This desire for worship, from which men cannot get away, has has been created in him, by the Creator, and that's Sadhu Sundar Singh from his book *Reality and Religion*, published in 1923. Sounds really content, It sounds really you know applicable to us in contemporary time because we are surrounded by people who have rejected the historic message of Christianity, and in their wisdom have run after all kinds of different ideas. They've elevated different ideologies and different. Uh, thinking, materialistic thinking about the universe into the place of God. And that is in its very nature, and this is to set up the table, to set the table, idolatry. You see, worship is, there's a place in our heart for God where we're supposed to esteem him and give him worth and to acknowledge his rightful place as the creator of the universe. And worship is what we come together to do every Sunday, but it's actually an a-, a heart attitude and it's an action that we take to give glory to God. That's worship. False worship is giving that glory, giving that place that should be for God in our hearts to anything else. Idolatry is when we elevate it, a created thing into that place. And so those are the, the terms I wanna, we're going to be talking about. And so this concept of idolatry. Now, idolatry was a major theme in the Old Testament significant theme in the Old Testament, from Genesis 1 all the way through to Habakkuk and all those ones at the end. Uh, And and for some reason, it doesn't get talked about that much in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean we're done with it. So actually, we're going to start on just a, a journey, kind of like an overarching journey of the Old Testament development of idolatry, and just looking at the nation of Israel. Because know, you know, this is kind of the, the giveaway right here, but idolatry was the main besetting sin of the people of Israel. It was the number one thing that they struggled with as a people. Uh, before I get there, uh, I had the great privilege of studying underneath another next slide underneath a gentleman named Greg Beal at Wheaton College. Uh, He's now at Westminster. Uh, He's a preeminent theologian on biblical theology in the world right now. Very cool guy. Uh, Loves Jesus. Uh, And he wrote a book entitled, We Become What We Worship, a Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And his basic, you know, I'm going to steal it, but his basic thesis from the book is that God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our being, we are imaging creatures. We are image bearers. But what does it mean to be an image bearer? And Jack Tier and Greg Beal, he's going to be like, why did you go off script? Uh, we are like reflectors, but we're kind of like solar panels, kind of like, I don't know. It's a really weird analogy, but we... Reflect God's glory, and in it we get, you know, we have life. And that's the initial plan or initial design that humans have, but because of sin, we're marred and broken, and the ability to reflect Christ is marred and broken in sin, and so we can't perfectly reflect Christ. But Jesus did, which is really good news, and we'll get to the gospel angle of this later. Uh, And so at our very core, we are imaging beings, and that's what he's really talking about there, the idea of the imagio day, the the image of God in us. We will image forth God, and if not God, we will image forth something else. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. It's not something you can opt in or opt out of. It's always on. It's not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. And the thesis of his book, which I would highly recommend to any of you who are more theologically minded, it's a little dense, but it's pretty thin and short, so really great book. Uh, We, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Now, I don't want to bury the lead, so to speak. That's a kind of a journalistic term. It's when you hide the really important thing in an article way down at the bottom where nobody gets to it. So, uh, I'm going to give you the thesis right up front. I'm going to give you my main point. Uh, and that is, if I can turn to it, if we do not worship God, we will find or make something or someone else the object of our worship. We become handicapped and are wounded, worshiping anything other than God. And we will become like the thing that we worship, either for ruin or restoration. We'll steal those from him because he's obviously a lot smarter than I am. But... God in his limitless limitless love and patience allows us to turn back to him in repentance and be restored to a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So the hope of the gospel is that God is actively pursuing us and desires to restore, to lead us away from idolatry, lead us away from idol worship, back into a right relationship with him. So that's the that's the basic setup. I'm giving you the the main point, the main theme, in large part because we're going to go on a journey, and I don't want you to get lost. And there's going to be a lot of different a lot of different ways we're going to we're going to go down this. So uh, just to, just to start with, we'll start where everything starts in Genesis chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. So Genesis chapter one, and God said, "Let the earth bring forth." Oh, 24, I should say, 124. And God said, Let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds. And it was. Uh, oh, actually, he says more than that. Live Livestock, creeping things. See, this is the translation issue I'm running into. Creeping things and births, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there are some ladies in the room who are like, nothing that creeps on the ground is good. I don't know what God is talking about here. Uh, (laughs) Then God said, I want you to stop there, because this is really important for the sermon. God created these things. Everything in creation that God created, that is everything, was good. And so all the things that we turn into idols started out, before we twist them in sin, As good things. Oftentimes the things that we make idols in our lives, in our hearts, in of themselves are not good. But have either been distorted by the enemy in this world or by sin in our own heart. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So I want you to think back on the verse we read at the beginning, because you know, it's there in this verse, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal gods. So, we're going to talk about wisdom and foolishness exchanging glory, the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So, there's immortality, mortality, but, you know, here at the end, birds, animals, and reptiles. This is in a direct allusion back to Genesis 1. So, the reason why we're going there, the reason why we're there. Actually, in other translations, it says creeping things, which makes it. That moves on the earth, and of course God said after He created man that they were very good and interestingly, you know uh, a term you might hear kicked around in the church is the the idea of the great exchange that Jesus, part of the gospel is that Jesus takes our dirty rags, our sin, our brokenness, everything that we 've done wrong against God and against other people, and he exchanges that. For his perfect righteousness. And that's the great exchange. That in Christ we are a new creation. That in Christ he's traded the best for our junk. Now, this verse, interestingly, the one we're talking about today. I, you, know, you could have e- just as easily titled this, I titled it Made to Worship because I believe the main idea behind it is that all of us are intrinsically made to worship something. You could have easily, as easily titled it I don't know, The Inglorious Exchange. Rather than The Great Exchange, we're exchanging God's glory for images made by human hands. It's an inglorious exchange. It's a step down. It's in a sense... A topsy-turvy, it's a flip. It's like turning everything on its head. In fact, this is what this verse is. I mean, in Genesis 1, it says, God put man in dominion over the beasts and the fish and the reptiles and the creeping things and all that kind of stuff. But in this verse, it's the other way around. Man has been put under the lordship of idols made in the image of those things. And we do that, we submit to things that shouldn't be lording over us. Rather than being in the rightful place in creation where God has put us, we choose in our sin to submit to idols. God put man in dominion over his creation, unique in his creation as his image bearers. Instead, after the fall, mankind began to worship the creation rather than the creator. This is the very nature of idolatry. Now, Paul in this verse is setting up, you know, a a historic motif for him to jump off of, you know. But we're going to just keep digging down here because for many of us, you know, we talk about idolatry, we don't see it like the whole picture of it. Um, And so to get the whole picture of it, I want to take us back through a historic narrative of idolatry in the Bible beginning with the fall. So we're going to go now to Exodus 20, just to to set the stage a little bit more. And God spoke all these, so, so if you want to go there, turn to Exodus 20, we're going to read 1 through 6. And this is the Ten Commandments. And the Lord spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third generation, to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So uh, just the reason why I started with the Ten Commandments is just I I want you guys to think about this. 20% 20% of the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, deal with worship and idolatry. And, you know, if we were to take Jesus' words at it, you know, the commandments can be summed up into, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all, the, with all your mind, and that encapsulates the the Ten Commandments other than the, the second half of them, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your all your mind, worship. To worship the Lord your God is the the prime commandment of the Great Commandment, or of the Ten Commandments. And the opposite of that, of course, is idolatry. and that's the theme or motif or the main struggle of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And it doesn't start as this big, huge thing. I mean, God starts with it as the first two commandments. But where does idolatry start in the history of the nation of Israel? It starts in a really small place. I'm going to turn now to Genesis next slide Genesis 3134 blame it on the woman <laughs> uh oh uh oh this is such an innocuous place it's just this little tiny thing now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them and Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them so the first instance of a jewish person or a person in the line of israel uh, worshiping idols or having connection to idols in, in, in the Old Testament is this verse in which Rachel grabbed some idols from her uncle's tent and put them in her saddlebag. And they're really small. Like, they're small enough you can sit under. I mean, imagine if they were big and really, like, cumbersome. It'd be, like, really painful to sit on top of. Like, ugh! You know? But no, they're small. They're just tiny, tiny idols. They're small and occupied. They're not going to hurt anybody. And that's often the way idolatry starts. Like I said, often twisting something that is good, created by God, good, starting small, innocuous, but it doesn't stay that way. It doesn't stay that way. The idols we harbor, regardless of how small or powerless we may believe them to be, will grow oftentimes with destructive consequences. They grew exponentially in the life of the nation of Israel. They grew exponentially. In fact, the well, next verse we'll jump to, Exodus 32. I mean, we go from Genesis 31 to Exodus 32. It's just one book later, one chapter later. And this is a, you know, really, in some ways, this could be a sermon of its own because it's, it's got some hilarious angles. You could totally make some some great jokes out of it. So, so, you know set up the scenery Moses is up on the on the mountain with God communing with God having this great experience where he's like glowing and he comes down glowing and actually the translation in Latin for a long time like the translation for the glory of God being in Moses' face was mistranslated so for a long time they saw Moses came down the down the mountain with horns and so in some like medieval art you can actually see Moses with horns and the reason he had to veil himself is because he had big horns coming out of his forehead like Latin it's the thing Uh, so we got the Greek translation and found out it's just the glory of God glowing off him. That's why he had to veil his face, um, not horns. So if you see old, old depictions, medieval depictions of Moses, you'll have horns. And that, that just, that's the tip off that that's Moses. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, I wish I could just say to people like go up to my mom and be like, up. And she'd be like, no, (laughs) like make me food, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man, your brother, by the way, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Obviously, ring, you know, earrings were a big thing for, you know, guys and gals back then. Um, so all the people took off the rings of gold. That's a lot. And What is that? Like at that point, how many thousands of Jew, Jewish people were there? Anyways, a lot of people took off their earrings, uh, <laughs> rings of gold that were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool. What is a graving tool? Is that just like a... I don't even, Okay. And made a golden calf. So like, they don't give us a time frame on this, but I'm imagining it's like a lot of like, you know, your kids come home with art from school. It's not going to be something really amazing. Like Aaron's just like, okay, graving tool, gold earrings, melt them down. Okay. It kind of looks like a cow. This is good, right? And he made a golden calf and they said, these are our gods. <laughs> Ah, That's a pretty big... With the fishes on both sides, you've seen the the Charlton Heston version, right? Like, you know, uh, going through the seas with the Pharaoh behind you and like coming out of Egypt and God saves you and all the plagues and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, here's like some, you know, fourth graders like project, like make a golden calf. You know, Moses isn't up there for that long. I don't imagine they made anything really, really particularly good. And they said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He's like, man, I did a good job. Build built an altar. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up the early the next day and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They're just like, let's worship this idol. Let's have a party. And of course, God, And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. I'm talking really quickly. Like that's, you know, just shows something. I'm sure God is trying to say something there out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This is the first time this is said in the Bible. And stiff-necked is something that will be said about Israel in perpetuity from this point. Uh, And it's, it's very specific to this context, and so I'll unpack that a little bit. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may be burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. It's like, I'm going to start over. These guys can't do anything with them. I'm going to pour hot lava out on them. Uh, they're stiff necked people. I'm done. Israel done project done. You know, Israel 2.0, starting with Moses and Moses actually goes and pleads with God and says, Lord, you know, Please forgive them. You know, obviously, I wasn't there. And if I had been there, we wouldn't have done this. And Aaron, he goes down and has this great conversation. It's a totally different sermon. Goes down with that. And Aaron's just like, I didn't do it. I just threw the gold into a fire and it came out like a calf. You know? And it's like, come on, Aaron. He's like, but the people made me do it. Aaron, Aaron has a push Um... But no, there's this thing here, this stiff neck thing. Like, you wouldn't read into it. You would just, like, pass it up right away. But actually, if you know the Greek and Hebrew, or Hebrew in this case, uh, there's actually the word, the, the, the word to describe the stiff-necked people is actually used in the context of cattle. In fact, if you think about cattle, they're looking down. They're eating grass. They don't look up a lot. They're just kind of looking down and eating grass. And they can look side to side a little bit. But most of the time, their neck is fixed. And God is saying, these people made this calf, and they've become like it. They're stiff-necked. And that is a very intentional connection that the writer makes in the, in the Hebrew, that the, the people became like their idol. So we went from some little tiny innocuous you know, idols in a saddlebag small enough that it fit into a saddlebag on a camel. Now we're worship, worshiping in front of a golden calf. And if you follow the thread all the way through to the book of Revelation, which is not somewhere we're going to go today, there will be people worshiping the beast. And that thread of idolatry goes from that little camel bag all the way through to the book of Revelation, that little sin that entered into the, the lives of the Israelite people started out so small, yet it will continue through the entire scripture narrative. Despite, let's just say, the the, the usage of the term idolatry almost being non-existent in the New Testament. There's reasons for that. Some, some theologians think that the reason that uh, idolatry is not talked about a lot in the New Testament is because Daniel... Uh, in the the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends did not bow down before the idol. They famously stood up. Have you ever seen Keith Green's album cover, No Compromise? It's really cool. I should have put it up here. Uh, Just dating my... Not dating myself. I was actually born about a week before he died. But Keith Green, really cool guy. Anybody in here remember Keith Green? Keith Green? Okay, a few people. Uh, If you like... Cheesy Christian music with really good messages. He had an album cover where it's just like one guy standing up and everybody bowing down, and, you know, and that's kind of the, the context. That's how I think of it anyways. How do I... I went off on that tangent. I've got to come back. How do I come back from that? Pretty soon they'll be on to me. <laughs> so so this, this idea of idolatry doesn't end in the Old Testament. So, at least in the life of the Jewish people, after the Exodus into Babylon, the besetting sin of the Israelite people—the thing that kept them, you know, kept them in bondage—was idolatry. They, you think of all the passages, you know, you know, you've read them about cutting down astropoles and destroying the Baal temples and all of these things. This is something that every if you read the book of Kings and the book of Judges, it's like every, it's like this cycle that's never ending. It's like, we finally got rid of the idols and then the idols are back, you know? And all the way up until the book of Daniel and in the New Testament, you've got the new temple that Herod's built and idolatry goes from being this outward thing to in the New Testament, largely being an inward thing. In fact, Paul talks about idolatry being connected with covetousness, which is interesting because idolatry takes place in the first two commandments of the 10 commandments. It's like covetousness is like the last two. There's probably something there, but I don't know. Just going on a limb there. Didn't, didn't look into it. Probably something. I don't know. Maybe another sermon. Call me back another time, but idolatry doesn't go away. In fact, as all of you alluded to, it's still an issue we face today. It's just morphed. It's changed. Now, granted, I'm in Japan. When I'm serving in Japan, I'm like I'm like two blocks away from a pagan temple where they're worshiping a statue, or worshiping a rock, or worshiping a tree. Like people still do it around the world. People are still doing it. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to bring this back because you know we've we've touched on the latter half of that first verse, which is claiming to be. Uh, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So we got the exchange, we got the uh, allusion to Genesis, but the foolishness and wisdom thing, like that is like old Testament, like, like prime stuff. Okay. Got to go back and learn English again lost all my English words in Japan. Oh. <laughs> if it's in Japanese, how would I preach this? Okay. So the prophets, we're like, we're going to touch on every Old Testament genre. We've done the, we've done the <clears throat> Pentateuch. We got into a little bit of the, the, the historic narrative. Now we're going to get into some of the prophets. We'll end up with uh, a song. We'll wrap up with Psalms. Uh, so Here's what the prophets have to say about idolatry. If you don't think that this is a main theme, like you can just keep digging down. So this is Jeremiah 10, 1 through 10 and 14 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed. Did I skip on? I feel like I skipped. Got exodus, got exodus, got exodus. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, okay, I'm in the right place. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed in the signs of the heavens because of the nations are dismayed at them. So don't be like the nations. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down. And worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it can move. Cannot move. Gosh. Okay. Got to crack a joke. Awkward silence. Okay. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Okay, if you want to remember, like this is like you kids, if you want that Bible memorization passage, like their idols are like, okay, that's a good one. Okay, you just underline that. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. It's, it's kind of hilarious. Um, it's pointing out how stupid and foolish the Gentiles, the, the non-believers are. And they don't pull punches. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They, do, they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones, and under, you know, if you're underlining things, wise ones, because it goes back to what we're talking about today. For among all the wise ones, quote, quote, from among those wise ones of the nations and in, their, in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. So he's contrasting the idols of the Gentiles with the living God. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. And at his, at his wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure his indignation. Indignation. Okay. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. A work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish prophet Jeremiah not pulling any punches. Now, did you hear Paul in that? Just look at these idols. They're the hands. They're made by human hands out of stuff. Actually, let's go to Isaiah. He does it just as good. There's no slide for this, but if you want to turn to Isaiah 44, he has a really similar passage. Isaiah 44, verse 6. To 20. I'll start with 6 because this is about the contrast. I'm going to contrast. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? and you are my witnesses is there a god beside me there is no rock i know not any and of course the the play on the word rock he's you know okay you're you're all with me you're all with me the play on the word rock saying there's no rock like me so he's comparing himself the true and living god and saying there is no rock like me saying the other idols they're just worthless stone all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they, are, they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all Assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and in his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, warms himself, he kindles a fire, and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god, and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. So he's pointing out the ridiculous. Isaiah is pointing out the ridiculousness that if somebody would go into a forest, chop down a tree, he'd use some of it to make an idol that he would worship, he'd fall down, prostrate himself before it, give his allegiance to it, and at the same time use wood from the same tree to heat his home and make bread. Half of it he burns in the fire, the other half he eats meat, he roasted and is satisfied, he also warms himself and says, "Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire." And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, "Deliver me, for you are my God." This is pretty foolish. It's pretty foolish. They know not, nor do they discern, for He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge of discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roast meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So the author here, Isaiah, is saying that in their delusion, they cannot see that they've been blinded, that they've become like their idols. And uh, this idea that we become like our idols is actually most explicitly stated in the Psalms. I actually have the next slide, I have a psalm up there you can put up there, but I'm actually going to go to Psalm 130, or not 135. We're going to go to Psalm 115. just to prove how much this theme is there in the Old Testament. The idea that we become like our idols, uh, it's word for word in half a dozen different places. This is a, a consistent message given by the prophets to the people of Israel. And it's a, in, in the context, it's prophecy in the sense it's a rebuke. It's, it's, a call, it's to bring awareness to our sin, to bring awareness to our foolishness, to bring awareness to what is oftentimes goes unnoticed in our own lives. And so, uh, Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Not to us, but to your name. You know the song. For the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. But, fortunately, the song doesn't, it stops right there. It's like, okay. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, ears or eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So, going back to the, the Gregory Beale quote at the very beginning, uh, if I can find that. God has made humans to reflect Him, but if they do not commit themselves to Him, they will not reflect Him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we're imaging creatures. It's not possible to be neutral in this issue. We either reflect the Creator or something else. What you revere, that is, what you worship, you will resemble, either for ruin or restoration. It is very clear in the Old Testament that God is saying through his prophets, through the psalmists, that we become like the idols that we worship, that we reflect, they reflect back on us, and we become like them dumb, deaf, blind. And ultimately, Absent of breath, the breath of life. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And that is the, that's the testimony of the Old Testament. The testimony is that, that idolatry exists. And that it has a power. It's insidious. And that we become blind to it because our idols, as small as they start, become huge in our lives. They consistently take up more space, more power. They exercise more power over us. And if we ignore them, if we don't topple them, the ironic, the ironic thing is that all the verbs to do with throwing away idols are us pushing them over, or us chopping them down. They have no defense other than the power we give to them. But it's for us to turn the light on them, to expose them for what they are, and to turn our hearts, turn our worship back to the living God. That was a tangent. <laughs> We become like the idols. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. When you read it as, i say systematically or surgically as we've been reading these passages, when you put the passage together like they, that I have this morning, it becomes obvious. It's like, why would you take a piece of wood out of the forest and set it up in your home and worship it? It's stupid. It's foolish. But in as many a, d- a way, We do that with things in our own lives, whether it's our success, fame, power, uh, family, the things we delight in that are apart from the Lord. Whenever we raise anything of our hearts, good things above God and make them the delight of our hearts over and above God. We take the good things that are given to us from God as gifts and we make them into gods. When we do that, we're committing idolatry. And we're all guilty of it. This isn't me standing up here in front of you to say that I'm some person who's been able to be triumphant over this. In fact, this is something we need to be repentant of every single day. The battle is real. And part of the reason why this message is so consistently given to the people of Israel is because they forget it. And we need to remember that there is a very real battle for our hearts and for our allegiance. And we will either worship the Lord or we'll worship something else. There's not a neutral space. And so when we're not worshiping the Lord, we are inevitably worshiping something else. And if we think it's small and innocent and powerless, we're believing a lie. It will grow. It will grow in power and influence and strength to take over our lives. And we will bear the consequences of that as we come to reflect the idols in our lives rather than reflecting the glory of God, rather than reflecting the the attributes of Christ. So the good news is that Jesus Christ and take you, take you. actually I did this the wrong order in this sermon, in the last sermon I started out by going to Matthew chapter 4. So we'll go there now. We'll wrap up here, Matthew 4. Save a little bit of time. I'll condense this down. So this is Jesus and his temptation. He's been led out into the wilderness after his baptism. He's just re- received his his uh, identification as the son of God from God on high, speaking down in his baptism, saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He goes out into the the wilderness. You can, for your sake, if you want to imagine cactuses or whatever, you know, whatever gives you that desert feeling. He's out there. He's alone 40 days, 40 nights fasting, not eating any food. And he's just there. And the tempter comes and tempts him. And the tempter starts out with something really small. He says, you're hungry, right? You've been out here for 40 days. Here's this rock. If you're the son of man, make it into bread. It's just a little thing. God won't even notice. You're hungry, right? Jesus' reply is, man shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil is like, okay, you're a Bible reading man. Okay, got this, got this, good, good. Well, uh, in the Bible it says... If you jump off the temple, I'll take you up to the roof of the temple. If you jump off, it says, He he will command His angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's like, dude, you can shortcut the cross. Just go up to the top of the temple, you just jump off. Angels, you know, will slowly levitate you to the ground. Everybody will know you're the Messiah, everybody's going to worship you. You don't have to go to the cross. Take the shortcut. Jesus replied, and again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil's like, okay, no pretense. Here's the nations of the world. Put you on a mountain. Here's the nations of the world. This is what you want, right? You want all the nations to worship you. That's what the Old Testament says. That's what you're, you're, you're coming to do. Just bow down. Worship me. Worship me. It's like escalation from like a piece of bread to be like, idol worship, worship me. Jesus replies, be gone Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and in him only shall you serve. The good news for you brothers and sisters this morning and for me as well is that despite our failures, despite the many times that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus succeeded. Jesus was victorious. And we have had that great exchange. We exchanged the glory of God for graven images. We threw away the, 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 the rightful or the, the, the glorious riches of heaven for pods given to pigs. Pigs. And yet, Jesus gives us his righteousness. It's the incredible great news of the gospel. And so, aware of our struggle against idolatry, the tendencies of our hearts, Martin Luther said that our hearts are factories that make idols. Even good Christian people, we will make idols of good things. They will start out small we have to continually come to the cross. We have to continually come to Jesus and turn towards him. And the good news is that when we turn towards Christ and we begin to find our our value and our significance and our love in him, we begin to reflect him. And that's, that's the process of sanctification. That's Christ becoming alive in us again, us taking on the attributes of the true creator of the heavens and the universe, heavens and the earth that when we turn our hearts and our eyes to jesus we begin to look more and more like christ and so if there's any of us here today we've all fallen short we all have fallen short in so many ways but we have this opportunity even this morning to throw down our idols and to proclaim together that christ is lord and he invites us into that. Most of us do not have statues in our homes that we prostrate before. Although if you do, you might want to talk to the pastors here. Instead, we have hearts filled with idols. We make idols of success or our sports teams, our jobs, our spouses, we seek our comfort and significance in relationships or in some secret sin. Any idols that have taken The rightful place of worship and glory in our hearts from God lead us towards ruin. But the good news of the gospel is that God takes our hearts hardened into stone by sin and idolatry and with the blood of his son Jesus gives them new life. He breathes life anew into us just like that field of bones um, that, that were dead. And God breathes anew into them and creates new life when we respond in faith to the gospel and repent of our idolatry and turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that when he was tempted to sin, when he was tempted to bow down, to take a shortcut around the cross, Lord, that he told Satan to get behind him. thank you for the gospel thank you for these promises that you have promised us life or that we were dead in our sins and trespasses that we had become like our idols that we were without the ability to see or hear or speak or even breathe that we become cold dead hard wood and yet you spoke life into us you gave us faith You called us out of darkness into your light, Lord, and you gave us your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for your church where we can come and know you and experience you, Lord. And I pray, Father, for anyone here today who doesn't know you yet, Lord, that when they hear these words, they wouldn't hear condemnation, but they would hear reality, that they would hear that you have made this great exchange possible, Lord, that we often choose death we choose lifelessness and yet you offer us life lord And i pray for all of us here today who may even be struggling against secret sins or against covetousness or against any kind of idolatry that's taken root in our heart lord help us to cast down those idols and turn to you again this morning lord and give you worship and give you the uh just the acknowledge you in our hearts uh as creator as the lord of our of our lives We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.